Hello, and welcome to Bedtime Stories with Mozart. This is a podcast designed to help you young ones fall asleep. As a group of youth musicians, we are passionate about exposing others to classical music. Each episode, we play a short excerpt of a calming selection of classical music, followed by a reading of a bedtime story. We upload weekly with a rotation of different soothing voices. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is the Sarabond from Bach's second partita in D minor, performed by myself. Welcome back to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Chapter 4. Turkish Delight But what are you? said the queen again. Are you a great overgrown dwarf that has cut off its beard? No, your majesty, said Edmund. I never had a beard. I'm a boy. A boy, said she. Do you mean you are a son of Adam? Edmund stood still, saying nothing. He was too confused by this time to understand what the question meant. I see you are an idiot, whatever else you may be, said the queen. Answer me, once and for all, or I shall lose my patience. Are you human? Yes, your majesty, said Edmund. And how, pray, did you come to enter my dominions? Please, your majesty, I came in through a wardrobe. A wardrobe? What do you mean? 
I, I opened the door and just found myself here, your majesty, said Edmund. Ha, said the queen, speaking more to herself than to him. A door, a door from the world of men. I have heard of such things. This may wreck all, but he is only one and he is easily dealt with. As she spoke these words, she rose from her seat and looked Edmund full in the face, her eyes flaming. At the same moment, she raised her wand. Edmund felt sure she was going to do something dreadful, but he seemed unable to move. Then, just as he gave himself up for lost, she appeared to change her mind. My poor child, she said in a quite different voice. How cold you look. Come and sit with me here on the sledge, and I will put my mantle round you, and we will talk. Edmund did not like this arrangement at all, but he dared not disobey. He stepped onto the sledge and sat at her feet, and she put a fold of her fur mantle round him and tucked it well in. Perhaps something hot to drink, said the queen. Should you like that? Yes, please, your majesty, said Edmund, whose teeth were chattering. The queen took from somewhere among her wrappings a very small bottle which looked as if it were made of copper. Then, holding out her arm, she let one drop fall from it on the snow beside the sledge. Edmund saw the drop for a second in midair, shining like a diamond. But the moment it touched the snow, there was a hissing sound, and there stood a jeweled cup full of something that steamed. The dwarf immediately took this and handed it to Edmund with a bow and a smile. Not a very nice smile. Edmund felt much better as he began to sip the hot drink. It was something he had never tasted before, very sweet and foamy and creamy, and it warmed him right down to his toes. It is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. The queen let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. He was quite warm now, and very comfortable. While he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it is rude to speak with one's mouth full, but soon he forgot about this and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could, and the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat, and he never asked himself why the queen should be so inquisitive. She got him to tell her that he had one brother and two sisters, and that one of his sisters had already been in Narnia and had met a fawn there and that no one except himself and his brothers and sisters knew anything about Narnia. She seemed especially interested in the fact that there were four of them, and kept on coming back to it. You are sure there are just four of you? she asked. Two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve, neither more nor less? And Edmund, with his mouth full of Turkish delight, kept on saying, Yes, I told you that before, and forgetting to call her Your Majesty. But she didn't seem to mind now. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished, and Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he would like some more. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, 
and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating till it killed themselves. But she did not offer him any more. Instead, she said to him, Son of Adam, I should so much like to see your brother and your two sisters. Will you bring them to see me? I'll try, said Edmund, still looking at the empty box. Because, if you did come again, bringing them with you, of course, I'd be able to give you some more Turkish delight. I can't do it now. The magic will only work once. In my own house, it would be another matter. Why can't we go to your house now, said Edmund. When he first got on the sledge, he had been afraid that she might drive away with him to some unknown place from which he would not be able to get back, but he had forgotten about that fear now. It is a lovely place, my house, said the queen. I am sure you would like it. There are whole rooms full of Turkish delight, and what's more, I have no children of my own. I want a nice boy whom I could bring up as prince and who would be king of Narnia when I am gone. While he was prince, he would wear a gold crown and eat Turkish delight all day long, and you are much the cleverest and handsomest young man I've ever met. I think I would like to make you the prince, some day when you bring the others to visit me. Why not now? said Edmund. His face had become very red, and his mouth and fingers were sticky. He did not look either clever or handsome, whatever the queen might say. Oh, but if I took you there now, said she, I shouldn't see your brother and your sisters. I very much want to know your charming relations. You are to be the prince, and later on, the king. That is understood. But you must have courtiers and nobles. I will make your brother a duke, and your sisters duchesses. There's nothing special about them, said Edmund. And anyway, I could always bring them some other time. Ah, but once you were in my house, said the queen, you might forget all about them. You would be enjoying yourself so much that you wouldn't want the bother of going to fetch them. No, you must go back to your own country now, and come to me another day, with them, you understand. It is no good coming without them. But I don't even know the way back to my own country, pleaded Edmund. That's easy, answered the queen. Do you see that lamp? She pointed with her wand, and Edmund turned and saw the same lamppost under which Lucy had met the fawn. Straight on. Beyond that is the way to the world of men. And now look the other way. Here she pointed in the opposite direction. And tell me if you can see two little hills rising above the trees. I think I can, said Edmund. Well, my house is between those two hills. So next time you come, you have only to find the lamppost and look for those two hills and walk through the wood till you reach my house. But remember, you must bring the others with you. I might have to be very angry with you if you come alone. I'll do my best, said Edmund. And by the way, said the queen, you needn't tell them about me. It would be fun to keep it a secret between us two, wouldn't it? Make it a surprise for them. Just bring them along to the two hills. A clever boy like you will easily think of some excuse for doing that. And when you come to my house, you could just say, let's see who lives here, or something like that. I am sure that that would be best. If your sister has met one of those fawns, she may have heard strange stories about me. Nasty stories that might make her afraid to come to me. Fawns will say anything, you know, and now. Please, please, said Edmund suddenly. Please, can I just have one piece of Turkish delight to eat on the way home? No, no, said the queen with a laugh. You must wait till next time. While she spoke, 
she signaled to the dwarf to drive on. But as the sledge swept out of sight, the queen waved to Edmund, calling out, Next time, next time, don't forget, come soon. Edmund was still staring after the sledge when he heard someone calling his own name, and looking round he saw Lucy coming towards him from another part of the wood. Oh, Edmund, she cried, so you've gotten in too. Isn't it wonderful? And now, all right, said Edmund. I see you were right, and it is a magic wardrobe after all. I'll say I'm sorry, if you like. But where on earth have you been all this time? I've been looking for you everywhere. If I'd known you'd gotten in, I would have waited for you, said Lucy, who is too happy and excited to notice how snappishly Edmund spoke or how flushed and strange his face was. I've been having lunch with dear Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, and he's very well, and the white witch has done nothing to him for letting me go. So he thinks she can't have found out, and perhaps everything is going to be all right after all. The white witch, said Edmund. Who's she? She is a perfectly terrible person, said Lucy. She calls herself the Queen of Narnia, though she has no right to be queen at all. And all the fawns and dryads and naiads and dwarfs and animals, at least all the good ones, simply hate her. And she can turn people into stone and do all kinds of horrible things. And she has made a magic so that it is always winter in Narnia, always winter, but it never gets to Christmas. And she drives about on a sledge drawn by reindeer with her wand in her hand and a crown on her head. Edmund, who is already feeling uncomfortable from having eaten too many sweets, and when he heard that the lady he had made friends with was a dangerous witch, he felt even more uncomfortable. But he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight again more than he wanted anything else. Who told you all that stuff about the white witch? he asked. Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, said Lucy. You can't always believe what fawns say, as said Edmund, trying to sound as if he knew far more about them than Lucy. Who said so? asked Lucy. Everyone knows it, said Edmund. Ask anybody you'd like. But it's pretty poor sport standing here in the snow. Let's go home. Yes, let's, said Lucy. Oh, Edmund, I'm glad you've got in too. The others will have to believe in Narnia now that both of us have been there. What fun it will be. But Edmund secretly thought it would not be as good fun for him as for her. He would have to admit that Lucy had been right before all the others, and he felt sure that the others would all be on the side of the fawns and the animals, but he was already more than half on the side of the witch. He did not know what he would say, or how he would keep a secret once they were all talking about Narnia. By this time, they had walked a good way. Then suddenly, they felt coats around them instead of branches, and next moment, they were standing in the wardrobe in the empty room. I say, said Lucy, you do look awful, Edmund. Don't you feel well? I'm all right, said Edmund, but this was not true. He was feeling very sick. Come on, then, said Lucy, let's find the others. What a lot we shall have to tell them, and what wonderful adventures we shall have now that we're all in it together. Chapter 5 Back on This Side of the Door Because the game of hide-and-seek was still going on, it took Edmund and Lucy some time to find the others. But when at last they were all together, which happened in the long room where the suit of armor was, Lucy burst out. Peter, Susan, it's all true. Edmund has seen it too. There is a country you can get to through the wardrobe. Edmund and I both got in. 
We met one another in there, in the wood. Go on, Edmund. Tell them all about it. What's all this about, Ed? said Peter. And now we come to one of the nastiest things in this story. Up to that moment, Edmund had been feeling sick and sulky and annoyed with Lucy for being right, but he hadn't made up his mind what to do. When Peter suddenly asked him the question, he decided all at once to do the meanest and most spiteful thing he could think of. He decided to let Lucy down. Tell us, Ed, said Susan. And Edmund gave a very superior look as if he were far older than Lucy. There was really only a year's difference. And then a little snigger and said, Oh, yes, Lucy and I have been playing, pretending that all her story about a country in the wardrobe is true. Just for fun, of course. There's nothing there, really. Poor Lucy gave Edmund one look and rushed out of the room. Edmund, who was becoming a nastier person every minute, thought he had scored a great success, and went on at once to say, There she goes again. What's the matter with her? That's the worst of young kids. They always- Look here, said Peter, turning on him savagely. Shut up. You've been perfectly beastly to Lou ever since she started this nonsense about the wardrobe, and now you go playing games with her about it and setting her off again. I believe you did it simply out of spite. But it's all nonsense, said Edmund, very taken aback. Of course it's all nonsense, said Peter. That's just the point. Lou was perfectly all right when we went home, but since we've been down here, she seems to either be going queer in the head or else turning into a most frightful liar. But whichever it is, what good do you think you'll do by jeering and nagging at her one day and encouraging her the next? I thought, I thought, said Edmund, but he couldn't think of anything to say. You didn't think anything at all, said Peter. It's just spite. You've always liked being beastly to anyone smaller than yourself. We've seen that at at school before now. Do stop it, said Susan. It won't make things any better having to deal with a row between you two. Let's go and find Lucy. It was not surprising that, when they found Lucy, a good deal later, everyone could see that she had been crying. Nothing they could say to her made any difference. She stuck to her story and said, I don't care what you think and I don't care what you say. You can tell the professor or you can write to mother or you can do anything you like. I know I've met a fawn in there and I wish I'd stayed there and you are all beasts, beasts. It was an unpleasant evening. Lucy was miserable, and Edmund was beginning to feel that his plan wasn't working as well as he had expected. The two older ones were really beginning to think Lucy was out of her mind. They stood in the passage talking about it in whispers long after she had gone to bed. The result was the next morning they decided that they really would go and tell the whole thing to the professor. He'll write to father if he thinks there is really something wrong with Lou, said Peter. It's getting beyond us. So they went and knocked at the study door, and the professor said, come in, and got up and found chairs for them, and he said he was quite at their disposal. Then he sat listening to them, with the tips of his fingers pressed together and never interrupting, till they had finished the whole story. After that, he said nothing for quite a long time. Then he cleared his throat, and said the last thing either of them expected. How do you know, he asked, that your sister's story is not true? Oh, but, began Susan, and then stopped. Anyone could see from the old man's face that he was perfectly serious. Then Susan pulled herself together and said, But Edmund said they had only been pretending. 
That is a point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration, very careful consideration. For instance, if you will excuse me for asking the question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as the more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? That's just the funniest thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up till now, I'd have said Lucy every time. And what do you think, my dear, said the professor, turning to Susan. Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter, but this couldn't be true, all this about the wood and the fawn. That is more than I know, said the professor, and a charge of lying against someone whom you have found always truthful is a very serious thing, a very serious thing indeed. We were afraid it might even be lying, said Susan. We thought there might be something wrong with Lucy. Madness, you mean, said the professor quite coolly. Oh, you can make your minds easy about that. One has only to look at her and talk to her to see that she is not mad. But then, said Susan, and stopped. She had never dreamed that a grown-up would talk like the professor and didn't know what to think. Logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Susan looked at him very hard, and was quite sure from the expression on his face that he was not making fun of them. But how could it be true, sir? said Peter. Why do you say that? asked the professor. Well, for one thing, said Peter, if it was true, why doesn't everyone find this country every time they go to the wardrobe? I mean, there was nothing there when we looked. Even Lucy didn't pretend there was. What has that to do with it? said the professor. Well, sir, if things are real, they're there all the time. Are they? said the professor. And Peter didn't know quite what to say. But there was no time, said Susan. Lucy had no time to have gone anywhere, even if there was such a place. She came running after us the very moment we were out of the room. It was less than a minute, and she pretended to have been away for hours. That is the very thing that makes her story so likely to be true, said the professor. If there really was a door in this house, that leads to some other world, and I should warn you that this is a very strange house, and even I know very little about it. If, I say, she had got into another world, I should not be a bit surprised to find that the other world had a separate time of its own, so that however long you stay there would never take up any of our time. On the other hand, I don't think many girls her age would invent that idea for themselves. If she had been pretending, she would have hidden for a reasonable time before coming out and telling her story. But do you really mean, sir, said Peter, that there could be other worlds all over the place, just round the corner like that? Nothing is more probable, said the professor, taking off his spectacles and beginning to polish them, while he muttered to himself, I wonder what they do teach them at these schools. But what are we to do, said Susan. She felt the conversation was beginning to get off point. My dear young lady, said the professor, suddenly looking up with a very sharp expression at the both of them, there is one plan which no one has suggested yet, and which is well worth trying. What's that? said Susan. We might all try minding our own business, said he, and that was the end of that conversation. 
After this, things were a good deal better for Lucy. Peter saw to it that Edmund stopped jeering at her, and neither she nor anyone else felt inclined to talk about the wardrobe at all. It had become a rather alarming subject, and so for a time it looked as if all the adventures were coming to an end, but that was not to be. The house of the professors, which even he knew so little about, was so old and famous that people from all over England used to come and ask permission to see over it. It was the sort of house that is mentioned in guidebooks and even in histories, and well it might be, for all manners of stories that were told about it, some of them even stranger than the one I am telling you now. And when parties of sightseers arrived and asked to see the house, the professor always gave them permission, and Mrs. McCready, the housekeeper, showed them round, telling them about the pictures and the armor, and the rare books in the library. Mrs. McCready was not fond of children, and did not like to be interrupted when she was telling visitors all the things she knew. She had said to Susan and Peter almost on the first morning, along with a good many other instructions, and please remember you're to keep out of the way whenever I'm taking a party over the house. Just as if any of us would want to waste half the morning trailing round with a crowd of strange grown-ups, said Edmund, and the other three thought the same. That was how the adventures began for the second time. A few mornings later, Peter and Edmund were looking at the suit of armor, and wondering if they could take it to bits, when the two girls rushed into the room and said, Look out, here comes MacReady and a whole gang with her. Sharp's the word, said Peter, and all four made off through the door at the far end of the room. But when they had got into the green room and beyond it, into the library, they suddenly heard voices ahead of them, and realized that Mrs. MacReady must be bringing her party of sightseers up the back stairs, instead of up the front stairs as they had expected. And after that, whether it was that they lost their heads, or that Mrs. McCready was trying to catch them, or that some magic in the house had come to life and was chasing them into Narnia, they seemed to find themselves being followed everywhere, until at last, oh bother those trippers, here, let's get into the wardrobe room until they've passed. No one will follow us in there. But the moment they were inside, they heard the voices in the passage, and then someone fumbling at the door, and they saw the handle turning. Quick, said Peter, there's nowhere else, and flung open the wardrobe. All four of them bundled inside it, and sat there, panting, in the dark. Peter held the door closed, but did not shut it, for, of course, he remembered, as every sensible person does, that you should never shut yourself up in a wardrobe. Chapter 6 into the forest. I wish MacReady would hurry up and take all those people away, said Susan presently. I'm getting horribly cramped. And what a filthy smell of camphor, said Edmund. I expect the pockets of these coats are full of it, said Susan, to cape away the moths. There's something sticking into my back, said Peter. And isn't it cold, said Susan. Now that you mention it, it is cold, said Peter. And hang it all, it's wet. What's the matter with this place? I'm sitting on something wet. It's getting wetter every minute. He struggled to his feet. Let's get out. They've gone. Oh, said Susan suddenly, and everyone asked her what was the matter. I'm sitting against a tree. And look, it's getting light. Over there. By Jove, you're right, said Peter. And look there. And there. It's trees all around. And this wet stuff is snow. 
Why, I do believe we've gotten into Lucy's wood after all. And now, there was no mistaking it, and all four children stood blinking in the daylight of a winter day. Behind them were coats hanging on pegs. In front of them were snow-covered trees. Peter turned at once to Lucy. I apologize for not believing you, he said. I'm sorry. Will you shake hands? Of course, said Lucy, and did. And now, what do we do next? Do, said Peter. Why, go and explore the wood, of course. Ugh, said Susan, stamping her feet. It's pretty cold. What about putting on some of these coats? They're not ours, said Peter, doubtfully. I'm sure no one would mind, said Susan. It isn't as if we wanted to take them out of the house. We shan't take them even out of the wardrobe. I never thought of that, Sue, said Peter. Of course, now you put it that way, I see. No one could say you bagged a coat as long as you leave it in the wardrobe where you found it. And I suppose this whole country is in the wardrobe. They immediately carried out Susan's very sensible plan. The coats were rather too big for them, so they came down to their knees and looked more like royal robes than coats when they had put them on. But they all felt a good deal warmer, and each thought the others looked better in their new getup and more suitable to the landscape. We can pretend we are Arctic explorers, said Lucy. This is going to be exciting enough without pretending, said Peter, as he began leading the way forward into the forest. There were heavy darkish clouds overhead, and it looked like there might be snow before night. I say, began Edmund presently, ought not we to be bearing a bit more to the left, that is, if we are aiming for the lamppost? He had forgotten for the moment that he must pretend never to have been in the wood before. The moment the words were out of his mouth, he realized that he had given himself away. Everyone stopped. Everyone stared at him. Peter whistled. So you really were here, he said. That time Lou said she'd met you in here, and you made out she was telling lies. There was a dead silence. Well, of all the poisonous little beasts, said Peter, and shrugged his shoulders and said no more. There seemed, indeed, no more to say, and presently the four resumed their journey. But Edmund was saying to himself, I'll pay you all out of this, you pack of stuck-up, self-satisfied prigs. Where are we going, anyway? said Susan, chiefly for the sake of changing the subject. I think Lou ought to be the leader, said Peter. Goodness knows she deserves it. Where will you take us, Lou? What about going to see Mr. Tumnus, said Lucy. He's the nice fawn I told you about. Everyone agreed to this, and off they went, walking briskly and stamping their feet. Lucy proved a good leader. At first, she wondered whether she would be able to find the way, but she recognized an odd-looking tree on one place and a stump in another, and brought them on to where the ground became uneven, and into the little valley, and at last to the very door of Mr. Tumnus's cave. But there, a terrible surprise awaited them. The door had been wrenched off its hinges and broken to bits. Inside, the cave was dark and cold, and had the damp feel and smell of a place that had not been lived in for several days. Snow had drifted in from the doorway and was heaped on the floor, mixed with something black, which turned out to be the charred sticks and ashes from the fire. Someone had apparently flung it about the room and then stamped it out. The crockery lay smashed on the floor, and the picture of the fawn's father had been slashed into shreds with a knife. This is a pretty good washout, 
said Edmund. Not much good coming here. What is this? said Peter, stooping down. He had just noticed a piece of paper which had been nailed through the carpet to the floor. Is there anything written on it? asked Susan. Yes, I think there is, answered Peter, but I can't read it in this light. Let's get out into the open air. They all went out into the daylight and crowded round Peter as he read out the following words. The former occupant of these premises, the Fontumnus, is under arrest and awaiting his trial on a charge of high treason against Her Imperial Majesty Jadis, Queen of Narnia, Chatelaine of Care Paravel, Empress of the Lone Islands, etc., also of comforting Her Said Majesty's enemies, harboring spies, and fraternizing with humans. Signed, Maugrim, Captain of the Secret Police. Long live the Queen. The children stared at each other. I don't know that I'm going to like this place after all, said Susan. Who is this Queen, Lou? said Peter. Do you know anything about her? She isn't a real Queen at all, answered Lucy. She's a horrible witch, the White Witch. Even all the wood people hate her. She has made an enchantment over the whole country so that it is always winter here and never Christmas. I, I wonder if there's any point in going on, said Susan. I mean, it doesn't seem particularly safe here, and it looks as if it won't be much fun either. And it's getting colder every minute, and we've brought nothing to eat. What about just going home? Oh, but we can't, we can't, said Lucy suddenly. Don't you see? We can't just go home, not after this. It is all on my account that the poor fawn has got into this trouble. He hid me from the witch and showed me the way back. That's what it means by comforting the queen's enemies and fraternizing with humans. We simply must try to rescue him. A lot we could do, said Edmund, when we haven't even got anything to eat. Shut up, you, said Peter, who was still very angry with Edmund. What do you think, Susan? I have a horrid feeling that Lou is right said Susan. I don't want to go a step further, and I wish we'd never come. But I think we must try to do something for Mr. What whatever his name is. I mean, the fawn. That's what I feel, too, said Peter. I'm worried about having no food with us. I'd vote for going back and getting something from the larder. Only there doesn't seem to be any certainty of getting into this country again once you've got out of it. I think we'll have to go on. So do I, said both of the girls. If only we knew where the poor chap was in prison, said Peter. They were all still wondering what to do next, when Lucy said, Look, there's a robin with such a red breast. It's the first bird I've seen here. I say, I wonder, can birds talk in Narnia? It almost looks as if it wanted to say something to us. Then she turned to the robin and said, Please, can you tell us where Tumnus the Fawn had been taken to? As she said this, she took a step towards the bird. It at once flew away, but only as far to the next tree. There it perched and looked at them very hard, as if it understood all they had been saying. Almost without noticing that they had done this, the four children went a step or two nearer to it. At this, the robin flew away again to the next tree, and once more looked at them very hard. You couldn't have found a robin with a redder chest or a brighter eye. Do you know, said Lucy, I really believe he means us to follow him. I've an idea he does, said Susan. What do you think, Peter? Well, we might as well try it, answered Peter. The robin appeared to understand the matter thoroughly. 
It kept going from tree to tree, always a few yards ahead of them, but always so near that they could easily follow it. In this way, it led them on, slightly downhill. Wherever the robin alighted, a little shower of snow would fall off the branch. Presently, the clouds parted overhead, and the winter sun came out, and the snow all round them grew dazzlingly bright. They had been traveling in this way for about half an hour, with the two girls in front, when Edmund said to Peter, If you're not still too high and mighty to talk to me, I've something to say which you'd better listen to. What is it? asked Peter. Hush, not so loud, said Edmund. There's no good frightening the girls. But have you realized what we're doing? What? said Peter, lowering his voice to a whisper. We're following a guide we know nothing about. How do we know which side that bird is on? Why shouldn't it be leading us into a trap? That's a nasty idea. Still, a robin, you know. They're good birds in all the stories I've ever read. I'm sure a robin wouldn't be on the wrong side. If it comes to that, which is the right side? How do we know that the fawns are in the right and the queen, yes, I know I've been told she's a witch, is in the wrong? We don't really know anything about it either. The fawn saved Lucy. He said he did, but how do we know? And there's another thing, too. Has anyone the least idea of the way home from here? Great Scott, said Peter. I hadn't thought of that. And no chance of dinner, either, said Edmund. Thank you for listening, and good night.